Okay, then, Ty, I'll have to share the good news with you. Is that right? What we're alluding to, I became a granddad nine days ago. <laughs> yeah, my, my son and his wife have got a little girl called Eliora, and she was born on Friday, the 6th of October. So uh, I've only seen her twice. It's terrible. I could bombard you with photos. My uh, daughter-in-law is German, and actually her mother is over for the week, so we've given them some space, and then they're going to move in with us, so I shall have as many cuddles as I really want, which is fantastic. I wonder what your week's been like. I wonder what your month's been like. I believe that as we look at the Word of God, there's something here going to really challenge us. Just in the worship, I felt this phrase come back to me. I've used it in many ways before. If the cost, if the vision is unclear, the cost is too high. If the vision is unclear, the cost is too high. I'm listening to those uh, notices, and let's be honest, I'm not going to be here on the gift day. I'm glad I've not been asked to preach that week. But you suddenly think, oh, how much should I give? If the vision's unclear, the cost is too high. I'm not here on the 5th of November where, you know, some of you are going to don on a jacket and welcome in a load of people and you might miss the food because you're serving all your guests. If the vision's unclear, the cost is too high. I don't know how many of you volunteer to go out with the kids. For our church, that's often, you know, the one that you think, we could do with a few more volunteers. And we think, oh, the vision's unclear, the cost is too high. What is your vision for the church. What do you believe about local church? Uh, we come from uh, London, and uh, the, on the tube, they often have these little signs. Love is. Love is not eating smelly food on the tube, is one of them. Love is wearing headphones if you're listening to music on the tube. You know, it's another one. I was thinking, what is church? Throughout church history, many people have tried to answer that. There's one uh, semi-famous speaker in America who said, church is the hope of the world. So if I asked you to answer that, what is church? How might you answer that statement? William Temple, he was an English priest. He said, church is only in existence. And you'll think, what's he going to say? For non-members. So if this is your home then Foundation Church is not for you. It's for the non-members. John Calvin, he was a French theologian. Obviously, it was the whole thing of the Reformation going on, and maybe when your church had got stuck in some traditions. He said, church is only where the word is preached. He was saying, look, unless we get a hold of the Bible, unless we get a hold of it, this is not really church. St. Augustine, he was an African theologian in the third century, I think it was, he said, there is no salvation outside of the church. So church is in existence to bring the message of salvation to other people. Richard Baxter, he was a Puritan. This was in the 1600s in this country. He said, church is a mere hospital. Uh, why is that? He said, because it's a battle in life. And so why do you come to church? You come to church so that we bandage you up again and throw you back out on the front line. It's not cosmetic surgery. It's not, I'm going to turn up at church. It's going to make me look better, feel better, be better. He was saying, church is a, a mere hospital because you're going to be in a skirmish Monday to Saturday, so you're going to have to come to church, and we're going to have to try and 
patch you up well enough so that you can go and stand and fight for another six days. Now, I know what Owen's like, and I know that many of you would be saying already, oh, golly, Pete, why are you preaching this? Because Owen wants it all from the Bible. So how does the Bible define church? Well, we know in 1 Peter 2, verses 4 and 5, it says this, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. So actually, we could say church is a home. Church is a spiritual home. Actually, we'd say, well, yeah, this is, this is part of it. We, we want to come and worship God. We want to break bread. We, we want to do this because this is something of a spiritual home. It should have a house kind of feel to it. And that shapes the way you do church, doesn't it? I mean, let's be honest. If you go to a hotel, you walk up to the front desk. If there's nobody there, you go, ding, ding, I'm looking for some service. And that's quite respected within a hotel. But if you do that at home, you're likely to get a slap, aren't you? You just walk into the dining room and go, ding, ding, mum, I'd like some service. She said, open the fridge and help yourself. Well, that impacts how we have a spiritual home, doesn't it? We don't turn up and go, ding, ding, serve me. We think, well, this is my home. If other people came in, I'd want them to feel at home. Church is a temple, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16. Don't you know you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? So surely church is where God is. Now, I know that theologically you're going to say to me, yeah, but Pete, God is with me wherever I go 24-7. I totally get that. But I still think there's something about the manifest presence of God when we gather together. And so I, we don't just come to a climbing centre on a Sunday afternoon and think, hmm, nice bunch. I can't believe it. I mean, you guys give out grapes. We just give out biscuits, you know what I'm saying? No, no, God is here. So when I come to church, I'm fully expecting to be blown away by God. If this is not supernatural, I'm playing at something. You see what I'm saying? Because God is in church. God is in the house. Church is, according to 1 Peter 5, to the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, as a witness of God's suffering, who will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock. Church is a flock. I mean, let's be brutally honest. I've never heard of one sheep being called a flock. And most of you say, well, that's a silly thing to say because it's always more than one, isn't it? So church is not you at home on your own. Church is us here together. There is something of the corporate nature, surely, of the church. Also, if there's a flock, there's a shepherd. We believe biblically in the elders are the shepherds, but actually Jesus is the ultimate shepherd, the shepherd over... Oh, this gives me... So my vision of church gets clearer and clearer. This is probably my favorite. I've got to be honest, you're not supposed to have favorites in the Bible. It's all God's word and inspired Revelation 19 and verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him the glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. So what's our vision of the church? Our vision of the church is this is the bride of Christ. I have the privilege of doing weddings. I've got two weddings in the next eight days in my church. 
So I'm doing one on Friday, or maybe it's nine days, and one on Tuesday after. And I mean, these people, they've been planning everything, you know what I'm saying? We've been meeting with them. You know, I've got so many instructions of what I've got to say and how I've got to run the service. Because, hey, we, we want to make sure this is a beautiful wedding. I'll tell you, you look around, so what, what are we? We're the bride of Christ. I mean, that's, that's what church is. Uh, uh, you know, I mean, one of those privileges, isn't it? If, you know, in this country, suddenly the music plays and everybody stands up and they all look around and there's barely a dry eye in their house and this bride just comes in. <laughs> wow, you are well out of your class, most of us think. Don't we? You've suddenly got this girl. That's the bride. So when we gather on a Sunday afternoon, we're not just playing at some religious club. We're coming here and saying, we want to get the bride ready for that day. If the vision is unclear, the cost is too high. If we forget that, then when we're asked to give our money, or when we're asked to serve, we think, ah, what, really? Again, now, more? Haven't I done enough? I, there are so many other pictures that I could have looked at. 1 Corinthians 3 talks about the church being a field. I should have done that, shouldn't I? Looking out the window here. Obviously, I'm used to preaching to the city, you know. I mean, the church is a courtyard garden, is much rather how we do it in London. But no, no, church is a field. You can look that one up. Church is a vine and an olive tree. Look at that up in John 15. Church is a lampstand. You could look that up in Revelation. Church is an army. I quite like that one. Come on, fights! This is, this is what the church is. I'd love us to turn to 1 Corinthians in chapter 12. Because I'm going to suggest that if Paul had to write the sentence, church is, that he would go to this one. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I'm going to read quite a section of it. It's the word of God. Probably the most important thing I would say, definitely the most important thing I say will be this. 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 12 to verse 31. Just as a body, though one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we are all baptized by one spirit as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free. And we are all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. The head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honourable we treat with special honour. And the parts that are unpresentable, 
are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, and of different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all have the gift of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? Now, eagerly desire the greater gifts. Paul uses this analogy in so many other places in Scripture, which is why I would confidently say if Paul was here today, he'd say, church is a body. Okay, let's just quickly look at 1 Corinthians. Let's think about this. We know it was written by the Apostle Paul. You can look up 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. They didn't end letters in those days by saying, love, Pete. They started from Pete. And away it goes. It says there clearly from Paul. We think it was written in about AD 53, 55 to the church in response to their letter to him. We don't have a copy of their letter. So it wasn't suddenly Paul sat there, maybe in prison, thinking, oh, golly, better sort out that lot in Corinth. I'm going to fire them off a letter. What we think is they'd written to him a letter. Why is that? You can read it in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral. Oh, no, that means he's already written. They've written back, and now he's writing back again. You see what I'm going? There's this conversation. There's this dialogue. That's how we understand this letter. And in this letter, they'd asked him loads of questions. And uh, we could track through it if we had time. It says, now, now, now. And they think every time that was almost like a bullet point. Hey, you asked me about food to idols? Now. You asked me about virgins? Now I'll explain it. And if you wanted, you could go through them. You can see that in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 1. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 25. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 1. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 1. You get the picture. So there's this two-way letter that's going on. So let me just pause right there before I even look at the body. They were asking for help. Are we? As Christians today, do we come in humility and say, oh, there's some stuff here I don't really understand. Could somebody give me some help? Could somebody explain this a little bit further? Or do we come to God and say, God, I'd just like to tell you how this whole thing's got to work. As I see it, if Owen only went that way, we'd all be a happier bunch. Oh, when do you say, actually, God, in humility, I, I really want to hear from you. I'd like to know what you're saying. My biggest fear of the internet is that we're all full of information but lack wisdom. So we can search out any fact we like, 
but we don't have the humility to ask someone else how to apply it. And what this says is actually, in humility, we need to say to one another, hey, what do you think about that? How do you handle that issue? What's your advice on this? I love it when there are people in the church that are older than me, because I'm always asking them, how did you find that? How you've suddenly become a granddad? What was it like for you? How do you not overstep the mark? How do you not want to make your daughter-in-law feel, you know, how do I listen to what they've got to say? Oh, you're preparing. I spoke to a gentleman in our church today, and his wife is really unwell. And he said, you know, the next stage of my life is I'm going to care for my wife full time. I said, you know what? You model something to everyone in this church about honoring their vows. You see, because we, we learn from those above us in a different stage. For us. And that's what we get here. There's something of understanding what is going on. Corinth was a, a weird place in many respects. They think there was 250,000 free people. They think there was 400,000 slaves. I don't want to get caught up in that. So it, it was a big place. It was not a university city. In fact, if it was known for anything, it was known for its temple. And what it was really known in the temple is that you went to worship by visiting a prostitute. And there would be a thousand prostitutes associated with the temple. And part of worshipping was to go and have this kind of experience. Obviously, therefore, they separated between the body and the spirit. And they said, you can do what you like with your body. Is your spirit there. And often they cancelled people that didn't agree with them. So the letter comes, and basically, if you ask me, the whole of 1 Corinthians in one sentence, here you go. Be united for the advance of the kingdom. You guys have just fallen out over too much. You split hairs over everything. And so Paul is saying, be united for the sake of kingdom advance. And so then we get this beautiful picture of the body. The body. One body. Unity. I've often talked about the, the church, to be honest, Ealing. I love the church that I'm a part of. And I often talk about, oh, we're family, aren't we? You know, obviously I'm a granddad, so you know, you know, I'm ticking along in years. When I was a kid, you know, we always referred to older people as uncle and aunt in the church. Because we're a family. Oh, this is brother so-and-so. We're family. Now, we've probably dropped all those titles and formalities now. But actually, it was a beautiful picture. We're family. I was chatting to someone today. They're Argentinian, actually. They just thought they ought to slip that in and let me know after yesterday's rugby results. They've got a new baby. And they were saying, oh, you feel so far away from your mum and dad at a time like this. And I said, but you don't need to because we're family. We have a girl live with us from our church. She got baptised about a year ago, just over a year ago. She got saved on Alpha before that. And uh, she, basically she said, I've got nowhere to live. And we said, well, you come live with us. Because church is family. And that's what family would do. There's no way I'm going to see my, my kids on the street. What if I wouldn't see it for my kids? Why would I see it for this girl? Church is family. And I often push that kind of picture. But actually, Paul would go back and say, hang on, Pete, hang on. I think you're overdoing the family thing. I'd just like to say, it's body. It's body. It's body. 
1 Corinthians 12, verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ and each one of you is a part of it. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 17. You could have flicked back two chapters because there is one loaf. This is why we break one bit of bread. It's symbolic. We are one loaf. My wife complains. We break bread most Sundays in our church and ours is all broken up into little bits. She said, it's just not very biblical, is it? We should have a big, big loaf. You know, I said, well, nowadays, you know, people don't like the fact we all just go and pull off the one bit, so we do it for them. But that is a clear picture. Paul says, okay, then, it should be one cup. There you go, you're not perfect either. <laughs> because actually, we are one body together. This is what it should be. As I said, Paul writes about this in Romans 12, verses 4 to 8. He writes about it in Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. Ephesians 4, verse 4. Ephesians 4, 12 to 16. Ephesians 5, 23. Colossians 1, 18. Colossians 1, 24. He comes and he says, body, body, body. The church is a body. William Barclay, I read his commentary on this. He was a Scottish author television presenter in the last century, he says, this is one of the most famous pictures of unity of the church that has ever been written. And so you think, hey, is your vision clear on the church? What are we? Are we just a group of folk that get together and swap text numbers? Have you read your email? Are we just a bunch of people that have to read our emails? Or are we a body together? We are united together, unity, not uniform. We don't all have to wear climbing trainers just to be accepted in this church. But we are united. Tom Wright, I'm quite a fan of Tom Wright. He writes several commentaries as well. I tend to read the ones by Tom Wright, but obviously he writes them under a different name if you're really intelligent. So it's the same guy. He talks about the church being like an orchestra. Jesus is the conductor. You know, we all got an instrument to play. I'm not very musical. I've admitted that to you guys before. I play in a ukulele band, but that just shows how lack of musical ability that I have. But if we were in an orchestra, I imagine I'd have the triangle. And I imagine that, you know, the conductor would go like this, ding, and I would probably still miss it on time. But he says, actually, that's a picture of the church. Hey, yeah, I've got brass section over here. I've got the string section over here. What bothers me about this? And look, I know there's good things about it because we've all got to look at the conductor and the conductor's Jesus. What bothers me is when you finish playing your song, you pick up your instrument and you walk out and do your own thing. And sometimes I think we approach church like an orchestra I'll turn up and play my part in the room when I feel comfortable for the performance. But then I would just walk out and do my own thing. Whereas Paul says, no, the church is a body. Let's be honest. No living body you know, gives away all its organs. That happens when you're dead. When you're dead, they harvest your organs to try and help someone else. We should be together if we understand something of the church. There's an African proverb that says this, one hand cannot lift the heavy load. 
Now our problem is we'd like to think, oh, I can because I go to the gym. Yeah, try and get the picture behind the proverb. You need two hands to pick a heavy load. We need one another. They also say the left hand helps wash the right, the right hand, the right hand helps wash the left. There's this picture. This is how body functions. Leon Morris, in his commentary, it's by the Tyndale series, says this, church is not a democracy. Let's all have a vote on it. Who thinks fireworks is a good idea? Hey, no, right we go. He says, church is not a democracy. It's not anarchy, but a body. Now, then, another commentator, and I don't know if we've got an American friends here. This is a guy in the NIV application commentary on this section. He's writing in America to the American audience. So we'll just sit back and let them take the bullets and see if we agree. All of Paul's emphasis on unity within diversity calls into question the behavior of a growing number of Americans who claim to be religious believe in God and even Christ and yet drop out of organized church life or at least fade to its periphery. So he's saying, look, the challenge is that you say, I believe in God. I believe in Jesus Christ. I can be involved in all these things. I'm just not too sure I like the church. So if I do go, I just fade to the back, to the periphery. And he's saying, how on earth can that be there? Because this is a body. So if I just press pause again, how's your relationship to the church? Are you leaning in or you slip into the back? Are you saying, oh, do you know what? I'm right in. Yeah, come on. Of course I'm praying for this. Of course I want to see unbelievers come. Of course I want to. Or you just think, oh, I'm not so sure. I've probably seen this all once before. Go on, give it a go, Owen. I'll, I'll cheer you on maybe next time you come around the lap. What is our approach? It's not easy. The church is diverse. Andrew Wilson, in his commentary on this passage, it's in the series, the For You series, says, in the world, diversity feels as if it is pulling against unity. Either you remain united and squash your differences, or you express your differences and fragment into a thousand pieces. In the church, it is different. Diversity serves unity, and unity celebrates diversity. So we don't just say, oh, well, you know, let's be honest, we're all young so we could be united. Hey, we, we're going to be all kinds of different things. We're going to have grandparents and those that are young. We're going to have those that have got a PhD and those that have gone through the university of life. We're going to have those that are married and those that are single. We're going to have those that were born here or those that have come from another country because there's something about this is a body that has been pulled together. But the vision's unclear. The cost is too high. Because diversity can be a challenge. And then this one body, he ends up talking about there are gifts given to the body. And what I would like to suggest, my little summary statement, we'll have a little look at it. Nobody has everything and everybody has something. So he comes and he gives away these gifts, you know what I'm saying? And it's not like, ah, oh, I mean, Nikki, she is quite impressive. I personally think so. We have been married for 31 years. It's not like, oh, she's got all the gifts here, so she doesn't need anyone else. She's got something to contribute. So have you. And so, oh, 
don't look down on your age. What's your contribution? Everybody here has got something to contribute. Don't think, oh, I'm sat in the back holding a baby. You know, everybody's got something to contribute. That, that's the understanding of this. Nobody's got everything. Everybody's got something. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 15 and 16. Now, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. Do you know what that says to me? People feel inferior. They often say, don't they, comparison is the enemy of joy. So you compare yourself to somebody else and think, I haven't got that gift. I'm not needed. I haven't got this gift, so I'm not sure foundation need me. Oh, if, if only I could play the guitar. Look, I don't ever want to practice, to be totally honest. I don't even want to tune it up, but I wouldn't like to be able to play well. I haven't got that gift, so I'm not needed. That's inferiority complex. It's saying, I wish I was somebody else. I wish God you'd given me a different gift. And, and Paul is writing to church and says, don't say that. Don't say, well, oh, if only I could do the kit as well as that. If only I was as brilliant, as inspiring in front of the youth as they are. I haven't got that, so I'm not needed. And then he goes on the other side. In 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 21, it says, The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. So he's basically saying, don't feel inferior, but don't feel superior. Don't feel, hey, because I've got these gifts, I don't need anyone else. Actually, I'm very confident in how the Lord has made me. <laughs> Thank you, brother. I don't think I need you. What he's saying is, no, I don't want you to be inferior. I don't want you to be superior. I want you to come together. And the whole reason, I'm going to suggest there's only two. You may do a study and say, Pete, there's a few more. Okay, I'm only going to share two with you now. Why are these gifts given? The first reason I'm going to say is to build up the church. Ephesians 4, verse 12, 13 talks about to equip his people for works of service. You see, whatever gift you have been given, it's not even so that you can turn up and think, oh, I've done well. You've been given a gift to build the church. Oh, if the vision is unclear, the cost is too high. If we think that the gift was given so that I could feel comfortable, or I could feel useful, or I could feel I've got my part, then suddenly we've thought about myself. No, the gift was not given for me. It was to build the The gift is to prepare that bride for that day. That's what the gift is for. So in whatever way you're gifted, and everybody's got something, it's to build the church. Marion Swords in the New International Bible Commentary says this, ultimately all gifts extend from God and are given for the good of the church. So you've got to be there to say, come on, I'm believing God has given this gift. Don't discount yourself, but he's given it to build the church. And what's the second reason that I believe every single person in this room has got a gift? It's to serve one another. 1 Peter 4 verse 10 says this, Each of you should use whatever gift you have received, yes, 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 to serve others. 
as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. So whatever gift you've got, ultimately it's to build his church or to serve other people. That's why I've got to keep saying, well, what's the vision? If the vision's unclear, the cost is too high. David Pryor in the Bible Speaks Today, that's another commentary series, says this, many Christians do not or cannot manifest their distinctive gifts in the life of the local church. The rich variety of the Christian community is thus hidden and its corporate life appears to the outsider as dull and conformist instead of diverse and colorful. I love this. Because what this says to me is, if you think Foundation Church is boring, you're the fault. Because you're not using your gift for building his church. So we don't turn up and say, oh, you know what, I I think Foundation could be a little bit better, and if only Owen and the guys sorted it out, we'd be okay. Actually, what they're trying to say is, we've, we've lost something unless we come and bring our gift. I don't know what your gift is. But I believe everybody's got something, nobody's got everything, and that we can bring this. William Barclay does it the other way. He's got two quotes, nobody else does today. I found him quite inspiring. The picture we get in the New Testament is a picture of a church vividly alive. Things happened. In fact, astonishing things happened. And I think, why does that happen? Because they were using their gifts to build his church and to serve one another. I think I want to be a part of a church where astonishing things happen. So then I think, okay, God, how have you gifted me? Right, how could I use that to serve you and to see your kingdom come? Paul is writing, I believe, in 1 Corinthians, a strong pastoral letter challenging the church the current body of Christ to be united, to be filled with the Holy Spirit and to see the gospel advance. Yet being the body, being united, solidarity is not the same as sameness. Unity is not uniformity, but we are a body. Yeah, I'd love to stamp on Owen's toe right now. I would, you know, you know what I'm saying? If I just really went down like that. Do you think his mouth's not going to go, ow? Do you think he's not going to feel it? His whole body's going to hurt because I've just stamped on his toe. Somebody here gets hurt. We're all going to feel it, aren't we? It's not, oh, that person got stamped on. Oh, that's a shame. I've been hurt. We're a body. We're together. But, you know, if, if Owen does really well... I don't think, oh, Owen's done really well. I think, man, we're all part of this. His success is my success. We're a body, aren't we? That's the picture that clearly comes through. I know that we're going to be breaking bread. I'm going to hand over very quickly to Chris, who's going to lead that. Arnold, in his book, Gifts and Graces, which is a commentary on 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, says this. In order to accomplish his work on earth, Jesus had a body made of flesh and blood. In order to accomplish his work today, Jesus had a body that consists of living human beings. 
So it's almost like his body was broken for us. His blood was shed. He did his work because he had a body. He is still doing his work today because we're his body. I'm a granddad. I feel like we should all hold hands now and sing, Bind Us Together, Lord, with chords that cannot be broken. And many of you are saying, I've never heard that one. Look it up on Spotify. You know what I'm saying? It probably came from the 70s. I think it's probably more appropriate, isn't it, that we all take part in the one loaf. That we all drink from the one cup and say, Ah, oh, Jesus, because of what you have done with your body, I'm connected to this body. I don't know.